Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the ideas and content expressed disturbing or objectionable. Hi, everybody. This is Todd Fredericks. Uh, I'm a professor of, I hope to be a professor. I'm an assistant professor of family medicine at the Ohio (laughs) University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. And uh, we're rejoining a conversation we started some time ago with Dr. Richard Samuel uh, in direct primary care out in Idaho. And with that, we'll let Nassar take over here. Hey, everyone. Uh, Welcome to another episode of Rotations. Um, Like Dr. Fredericks mentioned, we're here talking to Dr. Samuel, uh, discussing his direct primary care practice. And uh, last week, you know, we talked a lot about kind of how you got started and, and what drove you to do it. Um, and, and we also talked about burnout and how the way that you've been practicing medicine, you really haven't seen a lot of the symptoms uh, that other physicians have seen, which is, which is awesome because it's such a big problem nowadays. Um, so I was wondering if, if you could kind of give us like a typical work week, you know, what does that look like for you? How, why is it that, you know, you're able to kind of escape all these negative effects and, and enjoy what you do well the pressure to to see a lot of patients to make a living because you're paid by insurance companies you know that's gone i mean i am not dependent on insurance companies paying me cut rate wages or cut cut rate uh, payments and as a result having to see a lot more patients i mean that's pretty simplistic but that's kind of what it boils down to so the patient volume, as we talked about in the last episode, is cut by about a third, about, excuse me, by about two thirds. Um, my typical work day is I, I arrive at nine o'clock in the morning Pacific time. I work till 1230, uh, see maybe two or three patients in the morning. Uh, I'll take a lunch till two and then I'll work from two to five and see another maybe three to four patients, two to three to four patients in the afternoon. I basically uh, have packed enough time in each patient's visit uh, to spend, you know, enough time to answer all their questions. So the average visit is typically anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour, depending on how many questions and what kind of concerns uh, you know, a patient would have. So I don't feel rushed. I, I basically uh, transcribe in one of my medical assistants. I dictate and one of my medical assistants will put my dictation into an electronic record that uh, I have available when I'm after hours and I need to access the chart. So this raises the question, the, the bottom line, right? Because you're talking about volumes of nine patients a day. And I saw 37 yesterday uh, in, nine, wow. in nine hours, right? So this is the thing. And of course, I wouldn't ask you for specific numbers, but the question I think young people are going to want is, can I make a living by seeing nine patients a day? Because we are conditioning them to think that they have to see 30 patients a day to make a living. So can a doctor make a living seeing nine patients a day? Because that's yes. the other side of ha- <laughs> that's the <laughs> other side of burnout, right? Uh, okay, I can't see less because then I won't. I'll starve. But so I've got to be burned out or I starve. That's not. It's a it's a false dichotomy, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I see seven, eight, nine patients a day, and I can make uh, just as much as if I was seeing 35 patients, and, and depending on the insurance companies to pay me, you know, pay me uh, payment for the visit. You know, the, the key is this, that direct care practices, if, if they're run correctly, 
the overhead is dramatically less than if I had a stable of billers and staff, you know, in a traditional insurance building billing practice. So the overhead typically for an insurance billing practice is about 60% in family medicine. And my overhead is about 33%. Yeah. So I can get away with, with seeing less patients, having them pay me directly what I charge in my monthly fee based on their age, as we talked about in the last, in the last episodes, and still make just as much as if I was hustling to see 35 patients a day and spending all that overhead trying to collect the money. Which, with, which I would also add, with a clearer mind that's more thoughtful and capable of addressing depth in patient and encounters because you're not harried by that clock, uh, you're giving high... Exactly, and that was... Yeah. Well, one thing... Exactly. Before you go, just so I don't forget, and I want you to continue on this, Rich, do you have enrollees in your patient panel that are also subscribers to Medicaid and Medicare? Yes. Okay. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I want to make sure... Yeah. Yes, we have about 20% of our patients that are Medicare age or or have Medicaid. What we do is we opt out of Medicare um, so that we don't we, we tell Medicare, we tell the government that we're not participating in Medicare and that we have a direct contract with our patients so, so that uh, our patients pay us directly. But I would say our, our best estimate is about 20% of our patients have government assistance. And why do and those patients come, as, why do those patients choose to see you versus get quote unquote free care? They're paying out of pocket to see you. They can, well, it boils back down, Todd, to what we just talked about. Patients can see me the same day. They can see me the next day. They don't have to wait to, to you know, 10 weeks, five weeks to see their Medicare providing physician, their Medicare billing physician. You know, I spend plenty of time with them, so they air all their, their concerns and, and issues. It's, it's, it's basically a trade-off. I mean, they, they feel that they can get better care and more personalized care, they're willing to pay that extra amount, that $95 or $110 if they're in their 70s, for that extra service. Now, obviously, a lot of Medicare patients can't afford that. You know, I I get that. But for those that can, it it seems to be a win-win for them as well as for me. So we, we sort of jumped right in, uh, which is great. Um, it's a really good discussion, but I never got a chance to introduce our panelists. Uh, I, I keep making <laughs> That's my mistake. fault. I'm sorry, guys. I got, I got just two cups of coffee, and I got excited. <laughs> <laughs> Only two? That's breakfast. <laughs> so uh, hello again to Julia and Taylor, and thank you guys for joining us. Um, Taylor did break our episode last time, but we invited her back anyway. Apologies. <laughs> thank you for having me back. <laughs> but while we were kind of uh, talking and trying to reconnect uh, with Dr. Samuel here, Taylor brought up a really good point, uh, and I wanted to... To give you a chance to ask that question. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, during our little uh, technical break, um, I was talking to Dr. Fredericks and I uh, wanted to get your opinion on whether or not you see this model of uh, practicing uh, direct uh, um, primary care as being translatable to other specialties in the medical field. Um, I know it obviously it really conducive to like family medicine and uh, rural medicine and stuff like that, but do you see this being translatable to like, say, like neurology or? Um, Dr. Precious is talking about, he knows a cardiologist who might do this. Do you, do you see that um, being a viable like um, way of practicing? Yeah, that's a good question, Taylor. Um, it's more difficult for subspecialists, other specialties, to do direct care. And I, I 
don't have all the answers or all the reasons why, but one thing that I, I can think of is subspecialists are dependent largely on referrals from primary care doctors, you know, for uh, their, their, their business, for their, for their patient, patient load. And uh, specialists are much more procedure intensive. They're many times hospital based. And for those reasons, it's a little bit more difficult to do direct care in the specialty model. Now, with that said, there are some specialists that I know of that do a direct care model across the country. But by and large, it's centered around, centered in primary care. So family practice, internal medicine, pediatrics, though pediatrics is a, a little bit slower in, in seeing direct care type growth uh, in recently. But, um, you know, um, that's a very good question. And I think it largely depends on those reasons why it's tougher for uh, specialists to, to start a direct care practice. They're dependent on referrals, they're hospital-based, they're procedure-oriented, um, and those are more, those are higher ticket items out of pocket if you had to pay for those. So one question I had um, was about medical malpractice insurance. How does that work if, if you're in, in direct primary care? Well, in Idaho, we're a, a very uh, malpractice-friendly state in the sense that malpractice rates are quite low. Um, you know, we pay, as a family doc, you know, 5000 a year if we don't do OB. And by the way, I don't do obstetrics. That's one thing that I've given up um, as part of my medical practice. Um, there is a carrier, I can't, I'm sorry, I cannot remember the name, but there's a carrier that has uh, rates even lower than that, that markets directly to direct care practices. And there are about five to 6,000 direct care type practices across the country. So, you know, there's about 3% of the family practice docs are in some kind of direct care model. And so this insurance company basically uh, has a lower malpractice or offers lower malpractice to our kind of practices um, because claims have, have been shown to be less in a direct care practice, you know, malpractice claims. Uh, and you, you can speculate as to why. I would think it's because, you know, we have more personalized care, we have less patients, we have more time to think through more complicated problems without making an error. We don't have the rushed visit, you know, scenario. But um, yeah, that's basically uh, what I've seen while practicing. Sure. And have you ever noticed any sort of interference at all from whether it's the government or, or larger hospitals or, or these bigger, uh, these groups interfere with your practice at all? You know, I haven't really seen anything directly in that regard. Um, you know, uh, I think by and large, um, you know, the population in general is really uh, acceptable with you know, accepting of this kind of practice once they know about it, once they find out about it. And again, it goes back to the major hurdle is to educate as to how this is different and what this is all about. Um, my hunch is that uh, a lot of insurance companies don't like direct care because it potentially cuts them out of, it does cut them out of the loop. You know, if, if they're their clients are no longer clients because they don't want insurance. They want to pay a direct care doctor. 
then certainly they're going to lose business. So, you know, that's always been a concern among direct care, you know, in the direct care circle about, you know, how is insurance going to try to fight this? But, um, you know, they're, you know, basically our model speaks for itself. I mean, patients feel like they get better care in general, more personalized care, and they, they typically vote with their feet in their wallets. And do you ever do house calls for your patients? You know, that is a service that I offer. Um, I've done that a few times. I haven't done that a whole lot. But, uh, you know, if someone is bedridden and can't get to the office, then, yeah, I'll go to the, their home. And that's something that they always, people that get home care, you know, like that house, house visit always have been very appreciable, appreciative of the uh, service. Right. That's awesome. And, and can you then maybe talk a little bit about the transition um, from going from uh, someone who works as part of a group to going completely independent? Uh, because I think, you know, what everything you're saying is like an ideal situation for a physician. It, you know, everything sounds amazing. And I don't know anyone who would listen to this and say, I don't want to do that. Right. So what like what is what are some of the initial barriers that you had to cross to get to, to the point that you're at now? Well, if you're in a group that builds insurance, which, you know, a lot of family physicians, most of the family physicians are in, it's really tough to say to your colleagues, you know, I want to do a direct care practice. I want to go out on my own. Um, I want to tell my patients that I'm no longer going to bill their insurance. I'm going to require them to pay out of pocket. You know, that, that scares a lot of physicians away, you know, rocking the boat like that. We tend to be a fairly traditional, don't rock the boat kind of profession. And this is rocking the boat. This is telling people, listen, you're going to get better care. You're going to get more prompt care from me, but you're going to have to pay me directly. I'm not going to bill your insurance. And so that really is a barrier. That is really difficult to do. And uh, that you know, is something that a, that a physician in a group has to really assess. Is he willing to bite the bullet create some potential bad press initially being seen as greedy because now he's asking for money directly from the patient. Um, is he willing to count the costs and do that? And then you've got the issue of uh, setting up your own practice, getting new equipment or getting lightly used equipment and the overhead that comes with getting the word out and you know, advertising and so forth. So, you know, it's an emotional, it's a physical an emotional cost, I should say, and a financial cost up front. But if you can weather the storm and you, you like being your own boss and you're, you like being enhanced patient care, it's a, a good thing to do. It's a win. So that's one of the initial barriers. Those are a couple of the initial barriers, financial and bad PR, you know, stating that you want to, you know, have patients pay us, pay, pay you directly. So it raises a question, I've, I've considered this as an academic for a long time, that we're the only profession I know of that generates people with very high debt loads that have no idea how they get paid. And so, you know, you say the issue of greedy, and then you say, um, I don't know, you know, you, you come out as an interventional radiologist, they're probably going to offer you a contract for three hundred fifty to 400000 a year. That's a lot of, that's a lot of bank. Uh, you're getting paid by someone, whether or not, to me, it's a more pure form of medicine that... I am sensitive to the patient's needs. They're sensitive to me. They, and, and that direct service of now I evaluate 
now I'm evaluated directly. Do the patients believe I'm worth what I'm asking? And so I guess the question that that leads to that I'm really curious about, and I've talked to DPC doctors about this, how do you determine your fee structuring? And I'm not saying what you charge. I'm just saying what is the, the thought process that goes into where you should charge, what your set points are, how you determine that? Because we don't even teach kids how – there's no economics to even in medical school. They don't understand how anything is paid for. They don't understand what they get, how they get paid. They don't understand any of that stuff. It's a, it's a completely novel concept for a physician to have to say, what, is my, what are my services really worth? Correct. Yeah. It, it really, Todd, it really boils down to um, what, the, what the income of the community is. Um, there, there's a lot, of, a lot of variables in coming up with a fee structure. And I'll have to tell you, I did not do it very scientifically. Kind of slung it out there and hoped for the best. One of my mentors is Josh Humber, who's uh, with Atlas MD, one of the, the larger direct care groups out of uh, Wichita, Kansas. And, uh, you know, I heard Josh on uh, Dr. Humber on um, a, a newscast about 2013 uh, talk about his practice, which he started, I believe, I'm pretty sure he started right out of residency in 2010. And he, he discussed his fee schedule, and I said, you know, his, his practice is thriving. He's got two new associates now that are also doing well. You know, this is the fees that he used for Wichita. Those seem to be appropriate. I'll just set those up for, for Coeur d'Alene in North Idaho. And it seemed to be, it wasn't exactly identical, but it was fairly similar. And it seemed to be fair, and it seemed to be appropriate. So... That's how I came up with my fee schedule. That sounds awesome. Uh, unfortunately, we are running out of time here. Just a few minutes left in this segment of, of our episode here with Dr. Samuel. But I wanted to kick it to Julian Taylor. If, if they had any questions, uh, feel free to chime in. I just wanted your take on one thing. So I, uh, we, I have a couple friends here at OU who are currently enrolled in a dual degree program. So in addition to getting their medical school degree, they're also um, trying to get their MBA. And I was wondering if you think that that would be something like worth pursuing if uh, you're considering doing something like direct primary care and how useful you think that degree would be. That, that's a very good question. Um, you know, in direct care especially, we wear two hats. We're, we're docs. We're trained to be you know, medical physicians. Um, at the same time, we, we have to have a good handle on business, you know, how to be a good businessman. Uh, if you're not a good businessman or a good businesswoman, then, you know, you can be the best doc in the world and not have any patients or not enough patients to make a living. So if there's any way that uh, your your friend or your colleagues or anybody that's interested would, could get an MBA or get some kind of business training, that would be that would be icing on the cake, I think. That, that actually would be an excellent combination, a medical degree as well as a, a, a business degree of some sort. And how were you able to teach yourself? I, I don't. Do you have an MBA? I was. I don't think so, right? No, I don't. Yeah. So how were you able to teach yourself a lot of these financial ins and outs of having your own practice? Well, by trial and error, in the sorry. Basically, you know, I, I've always kind of had a pretty good sense of accounting, and I, I taught accounting and business administration at a at a Christian high school back in Maryland, way back in the early eighties. Um, so I. I I did some. I took some of those classes uh, in college, and I just had a, a real interest in, in business management, and so I just kind of learned on my own and 
kind of you know trial and error what worked and what didn't and i'm still on a learning curve i, I certainly haven't arrived uh, i still am you know got plenty to learn but uh, it's basically learning by the seat of my pants <laughs> julie did you have any questions uh, yeah, one question that I had is a term that I've heard thrown out um, recently is concierge medicine. And I don't know if anyone else has heard of this, but I was curious yep. how it's similar or different from direct primary care. That's a good question, Julia. You know, I, I'm not a, not a historian in the sense that I know exactly uh, the history of direct care to a T, but I believe that direct care the current direct care uh, model grew out of concierge medicine. And I believe uh, that started in the Seattle, Washington area in the mid nineties, early to mid nineties. Um, and concierge medicine traditionally is viewed as, as you can expect for, uh, for a high fee, you know, the wealthy and the famous and those that have the means can have a doctor on retainer. Um, and so, so direct care is a desire to try to, to make, you know, access, improve access that patients have with their physician, bring down the cost dramatically. So instead of paying, paying a doctor $10,000 a year, which would be a typical, from my understanding, typical concierge fee for a physician to be on retainer. You know, the average direct care cost is more like fifty to a hundred dollars a month. So, we're trying to uh, trying to take the model of direct personalized care from the wealthy to the middle the middle class, and that's 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 how direct care has basically evolved. Hmm. That's awesome. Uh, well, unless you guys have any other questions or comments, I, I was going to say. Uh, Rich, if you could, could you, if you could just summarize, like for people who are looking, you've talked about seat of your pants. What are the the three biggest lessons you've learned in terms of staff management and overhead management as a part of your process of doing this? Just three things that people should be aware of to avoid in terms of pitfalls or things that you've learned, if you can share that wisdom. What, one item that I need to emphasize is you need to take care of your staff. I mean, you, you can't skimp on on wages, you you have to have a team effort. You need to make them feel like they're part of this team that's educating the public about direct care and providing an excellent service. You know, you can skimp on other things, but you don't want to skimp on on that. So that's that's one thing. Uh, another thing is um, you need to really be. Um, uh, your patient, you need to be a patient advocate. You need to really bend over backwards. That doesn't mean that patients are your friends and your buddies and you do things after hours because there are some legal issues in regards to that, but or potential legal issues. But you know, you, you really want to make sure that your patients get the, the most personalized care possible because you know your patients are your best, your best advertising, your best marketing. If they're satisfied, they feel that they're taken care of, they've got plenty of your time, then um, then they're going to let their friends and their family know that this is a good this is a good deal. This is the way medicine you know, should be should be uh, practiced. So those are those are a couple things that I can think of, Doctor Fredericks, to answer your question. It, it, I guess the last thing that came up, and we I don't know if we covered it 
when you leave, do you ever leave town? I mean, Coeur d'Alene, you don't really have to leave because it's kind of a, a built-in destination, vacation destination. But, but do you ever leave town? And, and who handles that call? And that's a little out that's of sequence. Question. But how do you handle that call? If, well, yeah. That's a very good question. And that was another thing that I was really concerned about in addition to will I be bothered excessively after hours for medical problems. We, we, we talked about that previously. What I did was when I designed my contract with the help of an attorney back three to four years ago, I made sure that in the contract, patients knew that I would have up to 40 days off, 40 business days off a year where I'm not available by by, by cell, by by email, et cetera. Nice. And so patients, patients. <laughs> it's a lot of time. Nice. That's awesome. I wish I like eight, like eight weeks. Not, I have to say I haven't taken eight weeks. I've taken maybe up to four. But Just knowing you can. <laughs> I can if I need to. And, and patients understand that on those days that I'm out of town or not in the office, and I might be in town or I might be out of town, you know, if they have an urgent need, they need to go to a urgent care center, or if it's a true emergency, we need to go to the emergency room. So I personally do not have any doctor, you know, covering me you know, when I'm out of town, but it's written explicitly in the contract which they sign that uh, they're going to need to seek care, you know, elsewhere if there's something they can't wait till I get back in town. That's I, also have, I also have penciled in 13 weekends a year where I could be out. So that's... That's one of my. You're living my dream. Yeah, <laughs> you're living all of our dreams. <laughs> uh, so I, well, I do. Oh, go ahead, Rich. I just want to say, I just want to say that this dream is available to a lot of people. They just don't realize they have access to it. So if anybody's interested in talking to me or some of my other colleagues that I network with, you know, across the country, we'd be happy to answer questions. Awesome. Well, sounds great. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Samuel. We really appreciate it. And it's really just been so fascinating to hear about, you know, this, this new thing that we have at our, uh, you know, that, that we have as an option once we leave school. So uh, really appreciate your time. Yeah, it's been great, Rich. Thank you yeah. so much for agreeing to talk to us. Well, I enjoyed talking to you guys. You had great questions and uh, really enjoyed this session. So thanks for inviting me to be a part of your podcast. Man, Th thanks. I, like I say, everybody good? You guys, anything else? Oh, no. Thank you so much a, for answering. He's got questions. his one patient for the afternoon to see. <laughs> yeah. We've got to go we on and see 25. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure talking to you guys. We'll, we'll keep in touch. Yeah, thank you so thank much. You. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, Bye-bye. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is hosted by Nisarg Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks, audio engineered by Kyle Snyder, and edited by Brian Plough. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. 
You may use Rotation's content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations. Thank you.